you want really good coffee to take on your next adventure, use CS Instant Coffee. You can find out more about them at csinstant.coffee. Um, and then you have what's called the canaletta. So it's this 1,500-foot climb through loose rock and scree and rubble that's really, really just terrible and is really slow. You're basically staring at the summit for two hours. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. Please sign up for the 2020 Adventure Grant if you have an adventure that you're planning this year. Uh, The link is in our show notes, but it's being funded by Athletic Brewing, and you can find it at athleticbrewing.com and go to Explore, and I think it's it's somewhere on their website, but the link is in the show notes, and they are giving away $1,000 to someone who's planning an adventure in 2020 that is making an impact, a positive impact on the world. So whether it's supporting a charity or raising awareness or an effort to do something, you know, picking up trash along a through hike, something like that. Uh, we are supporting someone who is planning an adventure. So if you've got one that you're thinking of, or, you know, maybe you need a thousand dollars to even pull it off, shoot, apply. You never know. And please share it with anyone you think might be, a, you know, wanting a, to plan an adventure this year. Um, you know, it's pretty inspiring after you listen to episodes like the one today with Sam Channels, uh, because he's a college student that does adventures when he can. In fact, Sam has been on the show twice already, once to talk about how he does adventures in all his, you know, very limited free time, but every chance he gets, as well as uh, recently the Colorado Crest Trail, which he did a few years ago. Um, this most recent adventure that we're talking about today is climbing Aconcagua, which is one of the the seven summits. It is the highest peak in South America at about over 22,000 feet. Uh, Pretty incredible. And he fitted in during his Christmas break. Just the amount of time he had off is pretty much the time it took to fit it all in, which is pretty awesome. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hope you get out there and do something fun this week and uh, get something planned for the weekend. All right. Talk soon. You know, we've talked to you a few times now. We've had you on the show twice so far, so this will be your third um, episode. With all the trips you've done, we could we could have probably 10 more episodes right uh, now, yeah. much less everything else you're going to do. But I, I just want to hear what, what, with everything you've done and all the different types of adventures, how, how long have you been planning this one and, and why Aconcagua over anything else? This was, has, was the trip that I had, plan the longest for and that actually played in to some emotions that I had going into the trip so I planned this trip for over a year um and when I say plan I mean conceptually um I had been thinking about this trip two years ago to do with a group of guys that I lived with in the previous December And for various reasons, we ended up going to Ecuador instead, and we climbed Cotopaxi. Um, And then after that was done, for me, the next logical step was, of course, to think about next December. And Aconcagua had been on my radar because it had been on my radar early on because it was... A, a big mountain objective. It has an expedition style of climbing that you don't really find anywhere in the United States except for somewhere like Denali or Alaska. Um, meaning expedition style, meaning you're going to a base camp, you're setting up a camp, and you're kind of moving and shuttling loads up to higher camps coming down. You have a lot of gear and a lot of food with you. It's very remote. Um, and so that appealed to me. It's one of the seven summits, so that appealed to me in one way as well. But I think one of the things that interested me initially when I was first getting into college was that it wasn't very technical, that it required a lot of 
understanding of the mountain environment. It required great risk mitigation skills and understanding of acclimatization and high altitude, but it didn't require any rope work. There wasn't any technical rock climbing skills that were required for the route that we were looking to do. Um, And so to me, it had the opportunity to provide a very unique expedition style experience without taking on certain risks and without having certain prerequisite experience. And so I saw that as an opportunity to bring along some of my friends who maybe didn't have the mountaineering experience I had, but were solid in their general outdoor experience, who were proficient in wilderness medicine, who could do the planning of it, because I felt that if it was planned and organized well enough, that for the most part, it would be a walk up. And I think that that rang pretty true, having done it now and and looking back on it, that the, the most challenging part of this trip was organizing the logistics because we did everything self-organized. We didn't use a guiding service. Is that unusual? Um, it's not the norm. I wouldn't say it's never, it's, it's definitely not never done. I mean, we saw other people out there who were doing it on their own, but for the most part, people who climb Aconcagua are older in age and use a guiding service. and. Typically, it's a bucket list item. So normally, it's something that you tick off on your way to the Seven Summits. We were by far the youngest people on the mountain. I'm 21. Um, Shivam, who is one of the other guys that I took on the trip, is also 21. Andrew, I think, is 23. Um, And I don't think we saw anybody under the age of 30. Gosh, man, that, I mean, that takes some guts to be, you know, you guys are young. You guys definitely are young, even, even for this world. And in my opinion, just a a lot of people doing this, you know, this, this climbing and, you know, similar to the world of triathlons, like the people who are the best tend to be in their thirties and even forties sometimes. And, uh, um, I don't know if it just takes years of experience to, I guess it is partially years of experience, partially just, the older you get, the more patient you are with things, the more, I don't know, disciplined you can be, but man, what a, what an achievement. So, so did that, how how did that feel when you're sitting in these, these camps or in base camp and you look around and you guys are by young, by far the youngest and also you're self-guided. How did that feel for you and the team? Did did it cause doubt at all? That's the most challenging piece of it, in my opinion, is the mental aspect. Mm. And that's one thing I briefed my two climbing partners, Andrew and Shivamon, was I had experienced on previous trips, and not just mountaineering, but also backpacking, that there can be a lot of fear-mongering. And what I mean by that is people expressing their own emotions and doubts about themselves or about what is in the future in a way that makes you then doubt yourself. And so I noticed from the first night we had on the mountain, that friendly conversations and making acquaintances very quickly changed to, are you fit enough? How many days have you been on the mountain? Oh, you don't have enough acclimatization time. What gear are you using? Are you using? That's not going to hold up. And I told Andrew and Shivam, I said, look, we know we're prepared. We're confident in what we've done. Whatever anybody else says, they don't know how many hours you've spent in the gym. They don't know how many hours you've spent in Google Drive. They don't know what we're planning to do. So be friendly, be nice, be courteous. And just remember, at the end of the day, it's your head that is going to give yourself the confidence to go up. Um, It's not anyone else's mental game. And every day, we would do both a physical check. So we would ask ourselves how we're feeling. We would take all, all our pulse oximetry readings and we would make sure that people were feeling and and were or were well fed but we would also do a mental check so we would ask each other how how's your motivation what's your confidence level what are your doubts what are you nervous about just because we needed each other to be a sounding board for our fears like i was saying in a mountain environment where people are 
are waiting at base camp for days, they're just staring at the mountain and the objective. And all that they really can think about, and I'm generalizing here, but a, a big piece of what people think about and talk about is what's next, right? And what's next is something that's hard and challenging. And I think the natural progression for that is for people to just express their own emotions. And so that that was really challenging, is just working past that and trying to zone out the nervous energy. Where did you learn that to check in with your team? Did you read that somewhere? Because that, that seems... That seems like a very mature move uh, on your end and, and a very, you know, obviously a leadership quality. Um, but I, I think that's an amazing practice. I definitely picked it up from a lot of the experience I had leading trips with ORGT. But I think a big part of it was understanding myself through experience in other teams and also understanding, and this is going back to a previous episode we had, but um, understanding how I operate from my solo experience in Colorado. I knew that if I didn't have somewhere for my mind to wander, that it would wander to fear. It would wander to anxiety. And that's natural. That's, I think, reflexive almost, something that you you can't necessarily control. Or if you can control, it takes conscious effort. And um, whether it was in, in sports in high school or trips with my dad, I think I noticed that when I was able to talk through things with people, whether it was talking through and making a plan or just having casual conversation, that it filled empty space. And that empty space being filled didn't allow for that nervous energy, that nervous thought, that nervous conversation to then clutter my mind. Yeah, I mean, if you're confident in you know, what you've done and planning and the things you've accomplished already. I'm sure, you know, it, just like any other adventure, it's, it is that mental game. Um, you know, I know we're kind of jumping around here and just kind of dove right in, but I love just, that's so fascinating to me. What, what's going through people's heads on something like this. And you, and you realize a lot of, a lot of folks spend the money, spend the time, spend the energy, get in there, but they're not, they're not totally confident. And that can, that can make or break the whole experience and in, in, in succeeding and summiting. For you guys, you know, what could could you take us just through a brief itinerary of what the trip was? Like how many days? Uh, yeah, just kind of you know some stats stuff because because I've never done a big expeditionary mountain like this. I I've done the fourteeners here in Colorado, but nothing that's multi day, tons of gear, and I'm gonna be willing to bet that a lot of listeners haven't either. So and since it's so fresh on your mind, what what was that experience and what was it? What did it look like? So. The trip, all in all, was 14 days door-to-door. And I think 10 of those days, 10 to 12, I need to double-check my numbers because they changed. What we had planned to do ended up being different from what we actually did. And, and I'll share some more on that because I think that's a really important piece. Um, but it took us eight days from when we started walking at the park entrance to reach the summit. And that included a three-day trek to base camp, um, one day of shuttling a load to what was called Camp One and back down to base camp, um, another day moving the rest of our things up to the Camp One. So we had so much stuff that we couldn't carry it all in one day. So we had to carry it across two days. And then we made a critical decision to leave some of our stuff at a lower camp and basically make a summit push from very low on the mountain and then come back to our things on our way down. Um, And I can provide some more detail once I'm done with the overview, but that was another critical piece. And then... We moved from Camp 1 to Camp 3, which is confusing because there's no Camp 2. Um, and then from Camp 3, we made, we took another day to go to the highest camp, which is called Camp Colera. Basically spent half a night there, woke up at 2 a.m., and then made our summit push 
and then took three days to get all the way back down the mountain and then a travel day on the other end. So one travel day on the front end, three days of trekking to base camp, carrying to camp one, carrying to camp three, carrying to cholera, three days down the mountain. I think that's nine days of trekking. Yeah, so so my math is a little bit spotty because I'm doing it off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure we were door-to-door in between 12 to 14 days, which was fast. It's faster than we had initially planned for, um, and the reason is because of weather. Time for a quick message break. CS Instant Coffee is definitely the best instant coffee I've ever had. In fact, just out of convenience and how good it tastes, I decided for the last year I've been taking it on every single adventure I go on from backpacking to bike tours, uh, just from convenience sake, it's really high quality and it keeps me from having to take a bunch of other equipment out in the woods. Uh, But it's not just for going out on adventures. My wife actually takes some to work every single day with her. She takes a couple packs, uh, to refill her coffee mug, uh, as a teacher. She doesn't have a ton of time to, um, have to, you know, make fresh, coffee all the time so she just needs a little hot water can pour the coffee in and she's ready to go for her next class and not waste a lot of time so if you're crunched for time in your job uh, i would definitely suggest giving it a shot because they have been huge supporters of the show for the last year and i really appreciate everything they've done for us and it would mean a lot to me to go support them so if you're interested go to csinstant.coffee and uh, support those who are supporting the show it would go a long way Thank you. All right, let's get back to the episode. So Aconcagua is primary, primarily climbed between the months of December and February because that's the summer in the Southern Hemisphere. And the hardest variable to work with isn't rain, isn't snow, it's wind. When we were on the trip, there was not one day with clouds. Every single day was clear blue sky, was beautiful scenery, but the wind whips on this mountain. There were some days that the summit forecast was 75 mile an hour wind. So you're getting near hurricane force. Um, And it can get to a point where it's just not safe to stand. And so the biggest variable is when you get a weather window where the wind is low enough that you can actually climb. And most guiding services will cut, uh, have their cutoff, their threshold be about 30 miles an hour. I've found that anywhere between 40 and 45 miles an hour is when you start to feel like you're getting knocked around. And so each day we were getting live weather updates from my dad back at home through our Garmin inReach satellite messenger. And he was basically going on mountain forecasts and giving us temperatures, wind, and rain predictions. And every day it was basically temperatures. At the summit, it's predicted to be negative five today. And the wind is going to be 65 miles an hour. It's beautiful and clear. And the reason we moved up our timeline, and I'll get into that more in a second, is because We had initially planned to summit on a Wednesday-Thursday window, so one of those two days. And there was a storm, when I say storm, I mean windstorm, that was going to start on Tuesday morning and go all the way through Saturday of that week. And so we were basically looking at either moving up our timeline two days or waiting the storm out until we didn't really know when because our seven-day weather model was always changing. And we had enough food to wait it out until Saturday, but not much longer. And I needed to get back home so I could move out to Seattle to start work. And Andrew needed to get back home to start classes. And Shivam needed to get home to start work in Denver. So we had some limitations in terms of our time window. What we ended up deciding to do was take it very, very, very much step by step. And this is one of the biggest learning pieces that I I gained from this trip, is that it's okay 
to make changes to your plan as long as you understand how to take a step-by-step approach. So we had an itinerary that we had been working on for months. Like I said, I've been planning this trip for over a year. And we understood how many days of food we needed to carry. We understood how much fuel we needed. We, We understood all of our requirements. But we went in with the mindset of planning is only good for the sake of planning itself and that you need to be able to adapt. The mountain environment changes by the hour. And I believe that to interact with it, you need to be flexible to it. It's not going to be flexible to you. So we went in with the intention of taking each day by day and having in the back of our minds a summit window, but understanding that that might change and we would not have control over it. So when we were at base camp and we were starting to plan ahead two days, three days, and and starting to get a better sense of when we could actually summit, we realized that our limitation was going to be bringing everything, all of our gear, all the way up the mountain. We had initially planned to do what's called the 360-degree traverse. So there's two valleys that lead to Aconcagua. There is the normal route, which goes through the Horconis Valley, and then there's the Vacas Valley, which is used for the False Polis Traverse, which is what we um, had intended to do. And to do the traverse, you need to carry all of your things up to the saddle, the highest saddle on the mountain, and then carry them back down the mountain. That requires a lot of hauling loads, meaning carrying half of your things up to a higher camp and then coming back down and then spending another day moving the rest of the things up. When we saw that our weather window was going to be earlier than we had initially planned for, we realized that if we were going to carry all of our things up, we were going to miss it. And so what we then decided to do, and we were only able to do this because we were monitoring our acclimatization and everybody was acclimatizing well. And that's a key point because it can be reckless to move up the mountain too quickly if you're demonstrating signs of acute mountain sickness and if you're not really respecting how much altitude can affect your body. But we were monitoring ourselves and each person was waking up and getting a very solid pulse oximetry reading. Nobody was nauseous. Everybody had their appetite. Nobody was vomiting. And so what we decided was from camp one, we would bring four days of food and all the equipment we would need for the summit. And we would leave everything else at camp one and come back down for it. Rather than moving half of our things up to camp three, coming back down to camp one, moving the rest of the things up to camp three, then moving all of our things up from camp three to camp Calera, coming back down to camp three and climbing up to camp Calera the day after, which is the climb high, sleep low approach that is normally taken. But leaving our things at camp one would allow us to move from camp one to camp three to camp Calera in one push, in one full swoop without having to come back down. And that got us in position to summit on Monday, which is the one day of that week where the winds were below 30 miles an hour. And so that was a really, really important decision because it required us changing on the fly. And it confused, I was trying to relay all of this to my parents over text message and they were like, what, why are you going up? How's everybody (laughs) feeling? And they were confused and disoriented. And I basically had to tell them, look, ignore the itinerary because I always share the itinerary that I'm doing for trips with them. I said, ignore it completely, throw it out, do whatever you want with it, shred it, burn it. I'll let you know each morning what we're doing because from here on out, We're just taking everything step by step, hour by hour, day by day. And that was hard for people who were trying to plan out in advance. My dad was trying to change our flights and was trying to figure out the weather forecasts to give us. So flexibility comes at a cost of preparation. 
And if you have enough information, just like a quarterback gets to the line of scrimmage, looks at the defense, assesses the linebackers, and adjusts his play call accordingly, we had our information in our heads, but also in our itinerary, in our how much food we had prepared, and we were able to make that audible, that play call, that ultimately resulted in our success because we had thought through what would be necessary. How many hours at the computer or in, in, in a book <laughs> was that for you to be able to make that decision? Um, Cause that's just not, I mean, that's, you know, that takes, like you said, being able to be flexible is kind of a luxury of having that much information at your disposal to know, okay, now this is possible or this isn't possible. And that's, you know, like a really, just like you said, a good quarterback's going to know how to adjust and it's all based on things you already know. I, I don't necessarily know that it was a lot of hours behind the computer. It was more so hours in the field on the mountain taking inventory of what we had. So before we made that decision, we took about an hour or two to explode all of our gear and explode all of our food. And even though we had planned our food down to calories and grams of protein and grams of carbohydrates, each day people were just eating what they wanted to eat, right? If, if I pack a big bag of trail mix, I may say I'm going to eat 500 calories of it per day, but if I'm hungry, I might eat more than that. Or if I'm not feeling very well, I might eat less. And so I think the key piece to being able to make that play call was not only the pre-preparation, but also checking back in and, and kind of taking a status report and saying, where are we actually at? All this planning and all of this this calculation at home on a computer, how does it translate to what has actually gone on? Because your projected versus actual sometimes is going to have a big difference in it. Absolutely. And so with, with all that preparation logistics, how are you guys feeling physically? How did you like, how did your physical preparation, did you feel like you trained enough And, and how about your team? I think that the consensus for all of us was that we felt very physically prepared going into the trip. Day by day, each person got worn down to differing levels of extent. I have had a lot more experience than Andrew and Shivam had at extended expedition-style trips where each day your body is just getting worn down because of altitude or because of maybe you're not getting enough calories or, or just day after day after day grinding it out. Exertion, right. By the end of it, everybody was ready for a warm shower and a nice bed. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, man. I bet that first shower was awesome. Actually, I read, though, that your first shower wasn't very, uh, very oh, good. <laughs> my, so there was, there's two funny stories about that. So the first funny story is that first shower was terrible because the hostel that we were staying in hadn't turned on the hot water. So I had been oh, dreaming man. all day long about this like 15-minute shower. Sorry, Earth and conservation, but I was going to take a long shower. And it was ice cold. And I stepped in there, and I almost jumped out. So that was disappointing. And then the other most disappointing thing was before we started the trip, we went to this restaurant, and they had watermelon because it's summer down there. And I love watermelon. So I got a huge, they brought out this massive like log of watermelon, just like right down the middle of the watermelon. And I had dreamed for every day on the trip of going back to that restaurant and getting watermelon. And when we walk off the mountain and the first thing we do is we go to the restaurant. I walk in before the waitress can even give me my menu. I say, I want some sandia. Um, I said it in Spanish, but sandia is watermelon. And she, in Spanish, responded that they didn't have any, that they had apples. Oh. I almost cried. I almost, I legitimately almost cried. I was shocked. I was like, I don't know what to do. My dreams have been shattered. Yeah. Yeah. You're freezing cold from the shower uh, and there's no watermelon. Uh, oh no. it's, the tr so the trip sucked overall. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I always find that on long trips, 
the last few days, all you can talk about and think about is food. Oh, and yeah. I had been perseverating over watermelon, which is kind of silly, but to be to walk in and just have that like shattered was oh, it was crushing. You dude, I I've been there. Not not elevation, but I was on a trip one time and I I burst into tears out in the middle of nowhere in some wilderness with uh the thought of my mom's homemade key lime pie. I just thought about oh. it and started crying and thought next time I talk to her, I want to tell her to have one ready when I next time I'm home. <laughs> and and sure enough, it's just it just hits you though, you know, when you're when you're that focused and there's a goal that big, it's something so small, you know, is is just it's on your mind. It's gonna bring you joy. It's gonna be the best tasting watermelon you've ever had. And when it gets ripped away from you like that, oh, that's crushing. It's like a heartbreak. But yeah. Uh, yeah, man. So, uh, you know, I know we're kind of jumping around, but I I just, it, what an experience. Great job in planning it. You know, the the, the team, I know that uh, two of you got to Summit, correct? I know someone didn't get to Summit. Could you tell us about what was going on there and how that decision decision was made? Yes. And I just want to start out by saying that was one of the most mature and I think well thought out decisions that I've ever seen in a peer. So there were three of us on the trip, myself, Andrew, and Shivam, and it was probably at camp three that Shivam started to notice that he got winded very easily. So he wasn't nauseous. His pulse oximeter, I keep referring to that, but basically what a pulse oximeter does is it measures the relative concentration of oxygen in your blood. So at sea level, it's 99 or 100. But as you gain altitude, it, it starts going down. And so his readings were 80, 78, which were high, how high we were, were pretty good. But he just, like, even getting out of the tent to go pee, he could not control his breathing rate. He would, <laughs> like, hyperventilate almost. And he said that it, it was just weird because he felt strong, but he just could not control his breathing. And we woke up on summit day at 3 a.m. with the intention of leaving, meaning starting to climb at 5. And we wanted to give ourselves those two hours so that our bodies could wake up, that we could eat food and it would be digested. And we woke up at 3. And after everyone kind of had five minutes of snoozing, we took inventory of how we felt. So we asked each other, how you're feeling? How's your head feeling? How are your legs feeling? How's your lungs feeling? What's your heart rate like? And Shivam's response was, I didn't sleep very well last night, and I'm kind of nervous. I don't think I'm going to go up, but I want to prepare like I'm gonna, going to. And I told him, that's okay with me. Let's make the go-no-go no, go decision when we absolutely have to. And so he basically took those two hours to play through in his mind what he was going to do. How did eating breakfast feel? How did lacing up his boots feel? How did packing his pack feel? And we maybe started, I think we got about 50 yards from the tent. And he tapped me on the shoulder. He said, I'm not going up. I can't control my breathing. I don't feel confident in my ability to maintain a proper pace, and I don't want to be a risk to myself, to my safety, or to your safety. I'm going to stay in the tent. We all had radios, and so we were in communication with each other throughout the whole day, and Andrew and I stayed together for the rest of the climb up to the summit. And I'm still one proud of Shivam for being able to make that decision and really inspired by that because he was able to fend off summit fever. He was able to put aside any at any cost mentality. He could see the summit from our from our highest camp. And he was able to take the mature mindset of this mountain's always going to be here. My safety is way more important than anything, and I'm going to get safely down this mountain rather than dangerously up it. And I'm 
like I said, just very proud of him for being able to take that mentality and really just in awe of it. And Andrew and I, after he made that decision, asked each other, how were you feeling? We both felt really good, really strong, still very mentally motivated and confident. And we said, you know what? Here's what we'll do. We'll stay in communication with Shivam. We're going to stay together. We were not going to let either one of us be alone on the mountain. And we said, let's take it step by step. And if at any point we feel uncomfortable, let's turn around and go down. Slowly, we made our way up. And we were checking on ourselves constantly, making sure that each other were eating enough, drinking enough water, checking our respiratory rates, and making sure that physically everybody, each of us was doing well. And with that kind of see-as-you-go approach, we made it to the top and back down safely to Shivam. And Shivam didn't have any regrets. He was proud of his decision. He didn't have any resentment for... Andrew and I going up to the top, it wasn't awkward when we got back down. It wasn't like Andrew and I were celebrating and Shivam was just, you know, off on his own. We all kind of laughed and resumed our uh, playful, cheerful spirit. And I think everybody had a memorable experience, even though the experiences were different. What what was it like getting to the summit? What is the summit like? I, I feel it's a pretty big area, correct? Was it you know, a long walk after seeing the official summit marker, or was it right there? And how did it feel? So you actually come, you, you can see it's a plateau. You see it for a while, but it's kind of a teaser because it's so far away and there's no real sense of scale. So there's this resting place. It's called a cave, even though it's not really a cave. It's more of an overhang that sits about 1,500 vertical feet below the summit. And a lot of people will take like a 20 to 30 minute break there as a rest. Um, and then you have what's called the canaletta. So it's this 1,500 foot climb through loose rock and scree and rubble that's really, really just terrible and is really slow. You're basically staring at the summit for two hours. But once you get to the summit, you kind of come up onto this ledge, out onto this plateau that's maybe 30 yards by 30 yards and there's a cross that denotes the summit so you don't really see the summit until you're on it and the the immediate feeling when you get there is is just pure exhaustion you're like oh my god but if you have a good enough weather window like we did you can sit up there and just look out over the expanse and it is expansive there's really it just goes on for miles and you can actually, since you're so high up in the atmosphere, you can actually start to see the sky getting darker and the, the atmospheric haze. And you just feel like you're, you're in outer space. It's really a special feeling, even though the air is so thin that you're sitting there and you're, <sighs> you're, you're still exerting yourself just by enjoying it, but I think the most rewarding part is actually once you set off downwards and you're looking back up and you take a moment and you realize, wow, like I did it and I was there. And you, you maybe look at the photos you took because when you're up there, it doesn't feel real. It feels surreal. I can only imagine, man. That, that's, yeah, knowing that you're on the highest point in an entire continent is got to be a remarkable feeling, but I'm sure just like a lot of other experiences in life, it probably doesn't hit you till later. What, I mean, was that true? You know, you're going back down oh, you yeah. make it back to camp and it was just like, Oh my God, we did it. It does. It didn't hit myself or Andrew for days because we were so focused on getting down safely at that point. Immediately, as soon as we hit the summit, our mindsets transitioned from celebration to being dialed in, focused on, I need to make sure that every step I take is secure. I need to make sure that I'm still feeding myself because you can easily get distracted once you hit the summit. If you're, if you're, making, if you're climbing up, chances are that you're setting yourself a schedule of, I need to eat a snack every hour. I need to make sure I'm hydrating. 
But on the way down, since it's not as physically exerting, you can easily just get distracted and say like, yay, we made it to the summit. Oh my God, that was so fun. And just kind of plow your way back down to the tent. And you forget about your nutrition. You forget about taking care of yourself. And so Andrew and I were so dialed in and focused on taking care of ourselves and getting down safely because you descend from the summit, which is at 22,847, but your high camp's at 19,600 feet. You're still really high up. You're still in a place where there's not much oxygen. And so it's really not until you get back to the base camp, which is at 13,000 feet, that that for at, at least for us, we could kind of let our guard down and say like, okay, we're in comfortable territory now. I can relax. I can read a book. I can look back at my photos. I can enjoy it. And actually, when we descended the mountain, like I said, we hit the one good weather day. The next morning when we woke up, our tent was getting whipped in the wind. And so we were focused on making sure our things didn't fly away. So we did not have a moment to rest really until we got back to base camp. And only then, looking back up at the mountain, did it start to sink in. Did you have the chance to run back into those people that doubted you at first and say, we made it? (laughs) Um, No, we didn't because a lot of them had done the 360 traverse because they were with guided parties and they had porters that would carry their things up rather than themselves. And I think that's honestly for the better. I wouldn't really have wanted to, even though there was some part of me that would have loved to say like, yeah, we did it. You know, look at us. I think that, you know, in the end, that's kind of petty. And it was better for us to walk away from the experience, not having to interact with those people again and getting to laugh and joke and interact with each other and not have to have that hostility lingering. But we descended out the Vacas Valley, which almost nobody does because it's a lot longer. So the 360 Traverse, which we didn't get to do, would have actually been shorter than what we did because of the decision we made to leave our things further down the mountain. We had to hike back out the way we came up. And so we were hiking out one of the more remote ways, we basically had the whole valley to ourselves, which was really nice because the other valley, the Horconis Valley, is much more crowded because it's the normal route and it's also the descent route for the 360 Traverse. So we had a much more isolated experience, but I think that we enjoyed that more because we got to have a little bit more ownership. Nice little wilderness experience, something you're you're a little more used to to finish right. off the trip, something you're obviously a little more comfortable in and Wow, man, what an experience. So, so, you know, getting back home, parents still think you're crazy, I'm sure, but uh, I'm sure they were pretty <laughs> proud. Gosh, man, what is it just, was there anything different about this trip as far as, you know, reeling to adjust back to normal life? I know you just moved and I know it's not the longest trip you've ever done either, but was there anything unique about adjustment? Um, Actually, for this one, I think I noticed a bigger change in my metabolism than previous ones. So because I was at higher altitude, you know, my metabolism jacked up. And at night when I was sleeping at the high camps, I actually had to stash a snack by my head because I couldn't go the whole night without eating. And when I got home, I noticed that I was still ravenously hungry and that lingered for a while, which wasn't the worst thing in the world. (laughs) Um, But I think that this trip, maybe not so more than others, but definitely equal to, and maybe some ways more than others, got my family engaged um, in it. Every day I was checking in with my dad for weather and I was sending my mom a caption to post on Instagram that I had pre-made images for her to post that were basically just a logo and then like day one, day two, day three. And then she actually was creative and took a screen capture of my Garmin inReach page showing my location on the summit for our summit day post. I didn't tell her to do that. That was all her. Um, I definitely saw that. So I I was wondering how you were doing all that. I didn't know if you just could do it from the inReach or not, but I thought that was pretty impressive. So that's my mom. And so it was fun to have everyone engaged. It wasn't just my family. It was also Andrew's family and 
Shivam's family, and it was the first time for both of their parents to be in on a trip like this. So there was some anxiety and nervous nervousness, and my parents were on the phone with their parents, and so everybody got got to know each other. So it was this big extended team, extended family that was really engaged. So that was that was different, I think, and 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 really exciting. I know we talked a little bit, but did, did Andrew and Shivam have much experience at all before this? And and how hard was it to, to convince them to go? They had backpacking experience. So they, like myself, were backpacking instructors for our outdoor recreation program at Georgia Tech. But neither of them had been mountaineering, and neither of them had been above 13,000 feet, really. And at first, when I introduced them to the idea of the trip, it was intimidating. And I think what ended up convincing them was the step-by-step and very detail-oriented approach that we took with the mindset of, let's go slowly up the mountain. We only will go up if we feel good at lower elevations. And for any reason, we're getting any kind of signs, symptoms, or signals that what we're doing isn't safe, we'll turn around. And they appreciated that, and that resonated with them. And because it was non-technical, they didn't need to learn any rope work. They didn't even need to really have any experience with crampons or ice axes or any kind of snow or ice travel. They were comfortable taking the leap as long as we maintained the mindset of step-by-step approach. What do you think the biggest thing you learned from, from this experience? I think the biggest thing I learned is that a step-by-step approach is not default for some people. When we were trying to explain what we were doing to the camp doctor or to other people we were meeting and we were explaining, you know, they're asking like, what's your plan? When are you summoning? And we said like, oh, we don't know. You know, we'll, we'll see where we get. They're like, well, what do you mean you don't know? Like, how many days of food do you have? Blah, blah, blah. And it was hard to relay to others that, look, we can say that we're going to go for December 23rd or December 24th, but in reality, we won't know that until December 22nd. So we're just not going to say that, and we're going to say, tomorrow, we're going to wake up at 5 a.m., and at 5 a.m., we're going to decide what time we want to have our bags packed. And when we have our bags packed, we're going to decide when we'll stop for a water break, and so on and so forth. And so I think one of the best, biggest things I learned is that it's really important to express that and, and make it clear. I read a really interesting book or listened to a really interesting audio book on my Colorado solo trip called Made to Stick. And that's by Chuck and Dan Heath, I think. And one of the things they explain is the curse of knowledge, which is you assuming that the person you're talking to or interacting with knows what you're talking about. So me explaining that, hey, I don't know when I'll summit, assumes that the person I'm explaining that to knows that I'm taking it day by day. But to them, that may come across as, this guy has no freaking clue what he's doing. He's an idiot. Yeah, yeah. And so it's important to understand that people may not have the same background or understanding as you do. And if you want them to come away with the impression that you have of yourself, then you need to make that clear. Is that against the grain for that experience? Do people have a summit day they're shooting for? And in reality, is that even like li- likely? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sure yeah. everyone's telling their uh, day, but in your opinion, is that even worth saying with how many variables there are? I mean, so a lo- on that mountain in particular, a lot of people are just saying what their guides are telling them. Mm. Yeah. And those predictions and forecasts often change. And then they'll say something different. I don't think there's necessarily anything bad with saying, we're planning to summit on Thursday. For me, at least, I don't like to make that commitment because then... I get set on making that happen. And when I make a commitment, I like to follow through on it. And so I feel like if I don't make a commitment, then it's not even a change. 
in some way, right? If I'm not saying I'm going to summit on Thursday until Wednesday, then if I end up summiting on Wednesday, you know, I don't, I don't have to change my mind because at least for me, it's kind of a personality trait in me. When I become determined to do something, I, I get very much on that track and it's hard to push me one way or the other. But if I'm making a decision at the last minute that I need to make that decision, then there's a lot less time for that decision to change, if that makes sense. Wow. So, well, you know, it worked. So <laughs> it yeah. worked for you and it worked for the team, um, obviously for the most part, but, um, you know, it, it, the plan came through, man. And, and so, I mean, is there anything else now? I know that you're getting ready to graduate this, uh, this semester, correct? So I'm actually interning at a company this semester. So I'm okay. taking a semester off of school. Oh, okay. And then okay. I will return to finish up my, my, my coursework next semester. For the moment, I think the next thing is exploring Washington State and the Cascades, which is where I'm at right now. And it's really a place I, I think I could end up. I love it out here. I don't have an objective clearly outlined yet, but I've got some ideas. One on the horizon, it's just a matter of me finding two weeks, is Denali. I've been dreaming about it for years, but I finally feel ready. So now it's just a matter of finding two weeks in May or June, which probably will not be this year because I'm working. So probably will be next year. And there'll certainly be something in December and there'll certainly be something in this summer. So the adventures remain on the horizon. Awesome, man. Well, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with taking a little break if you want. I know you don't like to hear that, but, uh, <laughs> no, I know that's, it's, it's awesome. man. I'm so glad that it went well. I'm so glad it was, uh, successful and that you get to go into this internship with that much more confidence, that much more to talk about, that much more, you know, uh, uh, lessons you've learned. And, and I love following your journeys and hearing about what you accomplish. And yeah, congratulations again. I, I really enjoy sharing these experiences with you, Mason. Thanks, thanks for having me on again. Cool, Sam. Well, thanks so much, man. And uh, yeah, enjoy enjoy it out there in the Pacific Northwest. And we'll we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll stay in touch. Okay. All right, Sam. Bye. All right, bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast link is in the show notes and also if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure so if you know someone please reach out email us at info at adventure sports and until then get out there and have some fun <laughs>